Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Movies. As always, I'm Johnny Mockney, and this is a very special episode. It's not the usual type of episode where I sit down with a guest and we talk about a specific movie or two. Instead, this is an interview episode where I talk to somebody involved in the industry and we go through their filmography a little bit and talk about their inspirations and a few things in between. So my guest today, in case you did not read the title, is the great John A. Russo. He is an accomplished screenwriter, director, novelist, most notably the co-writer of a little film from 1968 called Night of the Living Dead, a movie that he co-wrote with George Romero before going on to a long career, uh, a continuing career to this day in many films, mostly regional horror films, which, if you know me, is my bread and butter. It's a subcategory of movies I will never not be interested in. He's the writer and director of Midnight from 1982, also Santa Claus, C-L-A-W-S, from 1996, also writer and director of The Mob Boss and the Soul Singer from 2002. Um, Has just quite a few cult classics under his belt also heartstopper just uh, an amazing uh, vampire movie um also the writer of the majorettes and voodoo dawn as well as just like a novelist he's adapted a lot of his own novels and um also the man behind the story for the return of the living dead one of the classic horror movies of the 1980s and also just one of the greatest horror comedies of all time. His most recent film came out in 2016. It was called My Uncle John is a Zombie, which he wrote, directed, and also starred in. Um, I saw that when that premiered, and it's currently available on a few places, I think, Tubi, Amazon Prime. And so um, also just has a whole lot of great books about filmmaking. His book, How to Make Exciting Money-Making Movies, is available on his website. It's available on Amazon. I obviously am linking his website in the description so you can find everything that he's written. There's a huge catalog there. Notably, Quentin Tarantino uh, spoke his praises when it came to his books about filmmaking. So if that is not quite the endorsement, I don't know what is. And without any further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with the great John Russo. Growing up in Pennsylvania, did you always have the desire to be a filmmaker or did that come later? Well, I grew up in a, in a mill town, Clareton, Pennsylvania, which is still a mill town, but a lot smaller smaller in population than it was and it was a boom it was a booming town when i was growing up we had everything we had you know one of the best high schools in the country we had a nice park we had recreation halls and picnics all the time in the park it was it was pretty good we didn't realize how good we had it so because it because we grew up in it uh and so by the time i was graduating from high school I knew I had writing talent. I mean, the teachers would tell me that, you know. And, and uh, so I'd, I was never the type of person that really wanted to work for somebody else. And so I thought if I could write a mystery novel, may, you know, that's what I wanted to do is be a novelist. So I started on a mystery novel 
but I really didn't have the craft at that point, you know, so kind of, and then I started college, so I actually wrote uh, my first complete novel when I was in college. It didn't get published, but parts of it did. Later on, I used parts of it in some of the characters in my fiction that did get published. So uh, we messed around with 8mm movies a little bit, me and my friends, but not very much. But when I was 18 years old, came home from on a Christmas vacation, and my friend Rudy Ritchie uh, introduced me to George Romero. George had come in to Pittsburgh from New York to go to Carnegie Mellon University. And they were both fine arts majors. And George was the one that was nuts about making movies. And so that's that kind of amped up the whole thing eventually. Uh, you know, I was bitten by the movie bug as much as George was. And that's, that's how it got started. Did you have any writing inspirations when you began writing? Were, the, was, were there any authors or uh, screenwriters or anything that you particularly looked up to? Well, I read, um, I read um, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and Adventures of Tom Sawyer in, in, when I was in fourth grade, and I was totally enthralled by all that. Yeah. And I, I was thrilled when I discovered that we had a, we had our own river, the Manoliella River, <laughs> right down through the woods behind my house. And uh, uh, so and Mark Twain remains one of my favorite writers. And uh, later I started writing, I started reading mystery novels when I was in junior high or high school and got, you know, intrigued by that. And my writing still has a lot of mystery in it. I just finished writing one. It's a manuscript unpublished so far. Just finished it called A Long Ago Murder. And it's a writer. It's a, it's a movie director it's, uh, based on my own career, things that happened in my own career. But uh, it, it, when he was 13 years old, his best friend was murdered. This is not oh, true. Wow. This is fiction. And uh, he decides uh, that in his 60s to go back to his hometown and, and solve that murder. Is the hometown also like a, a rural setting? Well, I, Clarendon wasn't rural. It was it's, Clarendon is only uh, 30 minutes from downtown Pittsburgh. Okay. You know, it's it, there are a whole lot of towns in the Monongahela Valley, and a lot of them were mill towns when mm -hmm. the mills were booming. And so there there's a lot of pretty nice towns, really. Yeah, well, I was I was wondering about um, because I think in all of your films um, the location is such an important part of them. I always say, you know, when you see films made in Hollywood that are supposed to take place in the in the Midwest or the Rust Belt or something, and you know, I always I bring up um, Halloween for example. As much as I love that film, there's that feeling of oh, this was clearly still shot in Southern California. Uh, but all of your movies have a very a, a, a distinctly either if they're in Pittsburgh or if they're near Pittsburgh, they, they have that visual texture that you can only get from filming on location. Did, did you always find the place to be, I guess, c cinematically inspiring or, or was it just a feeling of you were working with what you had? Well, we, you have to work with what you have, especially if you're making movies on a low budget, but you know, you also should write and do what you know. 
and I know this area very well, of course, and the, and I love the characters in the hometown. You know, uh, a deer hunter started out being shot in Clarence. Yeah. And it ended up um, that there were only eight shots done in Clarendon because they wanted to have the feeling of the mill always in the in the background, you know, always an omnipresent feeling of the mill. And in Clarendon, the mill, the steel mills are on the down on the, where the river is, and so and up on the hill is the more residential part of Clarendon. So they moved to Mingo Junction, Ohio, and shot a lot of deer hunter there. And, and that does have the feel, the same feel. It's a mill town, too, you know. So yeah. that was okay. But the characters, the real characters <laughs> that I grew up with were, were much more in, in exciting and interesting than the actors in The Deer Hunter. I mean, I know <laughs> it was a successful movie. But they didn't really capture that Milltown feeling with the characters, and people that don't know it wouldn't know the difference. But then again, then they go hunting, and it's in the Rockies. Well, there's a whole lot of hunting, and you know, three or four hundred thousand deer are killed every year in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of deer hunting, hunting of every type around here, but it certainly doesn't look like the Rockies, and it doesn't need to. I do. I, I know you've, you know, you've likely talked cumulatively for years about Night of the Living Dead. So I only have a, a few questions about it, and I promise we'll move on. Um, but, I mean, one thing that's clear about the movie, I think, is that it, it was not intentional that you were writing zombies necessarily. Is that right? Well, the, we they were sorry. ghouls. You know, ghouls. Not, not every zombie is a ghoul. Now they are. <laughs> right, but I mean, a, a ghoul goes after dead flesh, and, you know, <laughs> and the zombies. Uh, back, and we created this whole new genre with zombies right. that are flesh eaters, which were both my ideas. Really, I it was my idea that the creatures in the movie would be dead people, and that they were at, would be after human flesh. Those weren't George's ideas. He didn't know what they were. I came up with that. Well, and, and, that, I wrote, and I wrote most of the script. I always think it's amazing how, as recent as 1968, all of the rules for what we canonically consider to be a zombie was created that soon. When you know it, it's it's just as canonical as the rules for the vampire that were created by Bram Stoker. Um, mm -hmm. One thing in that movie, and and I know that uh, you've talked about this before, and um, uh, George Romero used to also talk about this, was that sort of the the social commentary that people projected onto the film was not intentional, uh, necessarily. Is uh, is that right? I, I didn't intend any of it. The people were just, you know, the sheriff is not a redneck necessarily. He's right. a guy doing a job. He's doing what he has to do. And Ben is killed by accident, not on purpose. Some a British writer in a magazine called Sight and Sound dredged up all this stuff about the political meaning of things and the underbelly of the film and even said that you could hear strains of old Black Joe on the soundtrack, which is, is not <laughs> there. That's his, that's his uh, 
imagination working overtime. And George, but somebody interviewed George right after that, and he gave into it and said <laughs> he acted like it was all true. I said, I said, George, you know, when you make a hit movie or a hit anything, the truth is just as interesting, if not more so, to the interviewers and the fans. So you don't have to lie about it. <laughs> Well, well, anyway, I mean, one thing I still find interesting, though, is I, I've read the original. I've, I've read one of the early drafts of the script, the one that you've um, uh, sold yeah. uh, under the title of the Anubis. Something that's still there that I think is sort of transgressive for the type of film it is, is you have this ensemble and the characters that we might be accustomed to as leads, like the young couple or the, the um, nuclear family. Uh, all meet very bleak demises long before the film is over. When you were writing that script, was that something you were thinking about that you wanted to sort of uh, transgress or, or I guess go against our expectations of who would be the lead characters of the film? Well, George and I came up right away with the, you know, there has to be a hero and the girl, Barbara, the, the Barbara character, you know, in those there was a lot of filmmaking in Pittsburgh. There were 20 film companies because Pittsburgh was the third largest corporate headquarters city in America. So uh, there was always a lot of TV spots, you know, industrial films. All those companies needed film. Uh, so, but the the actors were mostly avocational. In other words, they could they could take off work for a weekend or for a few days to do a TV spot or an industrial film. But one of the first things we always did, even whether it was a TV spot or an industrial film or whatever, once you got the script, you started thinking about, well, who can we cast? So pretty easy for, you know, we had a whole bunch of people we worked with and then we had new people for TV spots, whatever. Most of them weren't even lip sync, you know, the way spots were done back then. Uh, and so whenever we uh, started writing about the Barbara character and the Ben character, then, then, well, who's going to play them? And we knew we we wanted Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman because we work with them quite often on TV spots and we knew you know, we wanted them to put up six hundred their six hundred bucks just like we did, but also to be in the movie. So that was that part was settled. And then we didn't uh, know who Barbara would be. Well we knew Ben was gonna be a problem, but we thought push comes to shove, then Rudy Ritchie, who was a good actor, could play the Ben character. So that was covered. The Barbara character, here you had this actress that had to be pretty good and, and had to um, probably be on camera for for a couple of weeks, and who in the hell did we know that could do that? And so we 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 evaded the issue somewhat. If we can just find somebody good enough, we can get her through the first twenty minutes of the film, which is mostly action anyway. And then she goes catatonic. Well, then it won't matter so much if she can't really carry a major role. So that's why we, it turned out Judy O'Day was a pretty good actress. Yeah. Carl Hardman and Marilyn knew her. She was in Hollywood pursuing a career, and they brought her back to read, and we ended up casting her. So, you know, I kind of underwrote the part uh, on purpose because we didn't know 
whether we could get a good, good enough actors to play a larger role. Yeah, yeah, and she's obviously fantastic. And, and Dwayne Jones is just uh, incredible in the film. Um, I I wanted to uh, move on to talk about what what's my favorite film that you've directed, and that's Midnight uh, oh, oh, from nineteen eighty two. Yeah, I, I I love the movie. It's uh, it's so interesting. And and one thing I, I rewatched it again yesterday, and obviously i think at first glance somebody could draw comparisons to other backwoods thrillers like a deliverance or maybe the last house on the left or something but you have this really interesting element in the film which is kind of this this recurring theme of of uh religion and uh, with the way that the villains are satanists and the main character is established as very pious uh was that Something was that always there from the beginning when you wrote that story? Yeah, it's always there in my life. You know, I'm not, I don't believe in any religion. I'm not superstitious. I think it's all horseshit. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and uh, so the, you know, the midnight kind of asks the, the question, and, you know, are, are religion and superstition the same, just two sides of the same coin? And so the, there's, you know, the battle between the girl and the Satanists is, you know, is constantly dealing with that. I I think it's one of the better things in the, in the film when they battle each other with prayers, she's going to die, which she did in the first, in the book and in the first edit of the movie. And, um, you know, and, and the rich girl says, well, uh, the Cynthia character, um, in essence, your God isn't going to protect you. You know, mm-hmm. evil evil wins no matter what we do. Sometimes, right. not, not all the time, but a lot. Of, and when it does win, it's not. There's no God going to save you. Yeah, well, and I thought one of the most clever things in the structure of that film. Well, there's many things that I think are clever about the structure. Uh, the first thing I, I I thought of was how you have that opening scene that precedes the credits, the cold open with. Uh, the the family when the kids are young and it's established that they're you know religious extremists because they're saying that the girl is uh, a demon um and then right after the credits uh or even as the credits are still rolling we we see the main character of the film at confession and there's this immediate parallel that we draw between these two very different versions of religion mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, all that's intentional. Yeah. As far as the other movie, I I saw Deliverance and I read the book, and James Dickey was talking. He was dealing with the you know people have a, a, a fear of being set upon by strangers, and so to that extent, that's what happens in in Midnight, the exact same thing, and it's what happens in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and in. Halloween. I never did see Last House on the Left, so I don't know. But I did see later Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I saw I saw uh, the town that dreaded sundown, and it was scary as hell right around mm. that time. But what I did with Midnight was gave the whole thing more more. It, it's 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 a it's about serial killers, but but I gave it more structure. And I wanted to ask about the structure because I think one of the, the interesting things is the, the first horrific thing that the main character encounters is uh, 
uh, her abusive stepfather, who's played by Lawrence Tierney. Mm-hmm. Um, were you writing that? Were, did you have in mind sort of like a because she she encounters him, and then there's also a man when she's hitchhiking who's also uh, pretty perverted who's asking to her to prostitute herself. Yeah, for I was ride. setting up, you know, the, her reasons for running away from home and. It's quite common. I mean, unfortunately, it's almost a it's almost a, a, a jeopardy to be a woman yeah. nowadays. I mean, they're getting oh, yeah. abused and raped and every other thing. There's so many assholes in this country. You know, seventy five percent of the world's serial killers live in America. Isn't that great? We're number one. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and I mean, I thought one thing you also did that was pretty poignant was uh, the fact that her abusive stepfather is also a police officer yeah and, well all of those things you know you're trying to add um, texture and depth to the to things even even though you're working on a on a uh, low budget the things things that uh, that, cre- that create more interest in the characters and more depth to the characters and more resonance with contemporary life or whatever period you're writing about. So, I mean, you can easily make him just a regular father or stepfather, but why not give him that extra dimension? And then he needs to have, when he goes hunting for it, he has, as a police officer, he has resources to use to try to find her. You know, and he can establish a rapport with the sheriff down there. Because he's a police officer, the whole irony of the thing is strengthened because he's a police officer that's not a good guy. <laughs> right. Well, and and one thing I have to point out, speaking of which, is like I said, the the, the way the the film is structured is is so it makes it so unexpected when we are eventually introduced to the the killers later in the film. It's not immediately apparent that they are the grown up children from early in the movie, yeah. which adds a great mystery. Well, aspect. that was a funny deal because I got Savini to, to, to do that, to come on board with the thing. And, <clears throat> and I'm having the meeting with him, you know, discussing, well, here's what we need and here, what can you provide and all that stuff. And he started into a rap about, oh, he said, I'll make a cast of Jackie Nichols' face. That's the actress. And and I'll do this and I'll do that. And you know, when people are dead and mummified, people their skin turns black. I said, Tom, I want people have to recognize when they see this mummified mother that that is the mother that they saw 20 years ago or whatever. <laughs> I right. well, and he still went on, and this has a, been a, a problem. It, you know, young filmmakers, I caution them. The special effects people, they can be great and they're real enthusiastic and they a lot of them do a terrific job and movies need them, but they also fall in love with their fa- effects and they think their effects are the movie sometimes. Mm. And so they you've got to rein them in and sometimes you, you don't get across to them because they're so in love with their own effects and their own role in the production. So... Christ Almighty comes in and he's like five hours making up Jackie Nichols <laughs> and I'm losing shooting time and when it's done you she doesn't look like the mother anymore. 
And right. it's too goddamn late because I, I had a limited time and budget and I just had to shoot, you know. And I, I didn't want to have, like, a super on the screen 20 years later. Right. I, I wanted people to be shocked into realizing that that's the same family. So I didn't put the super on anyway. And I showed the film to George Romero in, in his office, in his editing room or something. And, uh, and when when those people came up on the, he said, who are those people? <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't half paying attention. His mind was somewhere else and he was doing business things while he was watching it. I, I, for one, uh, completely understood who those people were <laughs> when they showed up in the movie. I think most people did end up understanding it. Yeah. But George, uh, it was funny that that's what George said. When uh, John Amplis and um, the, uh, the other guy, I forget the actor's name, has that amazing mustache. The other cop. The yes. The other fake cop. Yes. Greg Besnack. Right. Um, and, and when they show up in the film... And they kill two of the main characters. Watching that the first time, it's shocking because you're you're thinking these are, you know, are these cops? This is this is such a strange diversion. And then it ends up uh, when you find out they're part of the family, it it kind of brings you back into the plot very well. And it had me thinking. It sort of has this. Uh, this almost stream of consciousness structure where we're not quite sure where we're headed, but when we get there, we it you know it felt like we were doomed to get there. Do, do you know the ending of your movie of your story when you begin writing? Uh, how, how much of it do you have planned out ahead of time? Most of it, generally. Generally, I have an outline that I work from, but things might change as I go along. But you know, yeah. I mean, I, I I've played in a number of things that I've written of played with this idea of, of, of people impersonating police. One of the things with serial killers is a lot of them have a cop fetish. Mm. And, you know, they'll they'll be, a lot of serial killers will be security guards or some something that gives them a, a, a uniform. They're, they're in love with uniforms. And for one thing, they use the uniform to, to trick people and, you know, get on the good side of women and then rape them or whatever they're crazy enough to do so uh in the original script of for return of the living dead there there are fake cops that show up and you think the fa this farm family's being rescued but instead they're out of the frying pan and into the fire so i played with it there and there's been a number of things where i've had people wearing uniforms that weren't what they were what they looked to be so it's just a good device and i'm the other question I have to ask you about Midnight is is that incredible uh, titular song. How did that end up in the movie? Uh, the song, well, I met with a sound castle. Paul McCullough and I were doing the editing, and I think Paul knew the sound castle. They're a Pittsburgh group. They're really, really talented. And it's yeah. a family. It's a brother and two or three sisters, and they have their own studio. And uh, they just do great work. Anyway, we met we met and showed in the edit, and I said I needed a song for the whole driving thing, and you know, once 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 they're in the van and so on, and they're just good. And they just came up with it. So you mentioned and they did the black mass music too. 
Okay, yeah. Well, that's incredible. In the, in the Black Mass sequence, one thing I wanted to ask is that Black Mass sequence and then also the, um, the confession sequence early on are both shot in this very striking way where the actors are just surrounded by pure darkness. How, how did you get those shots? We had done a film for U.S. Steel about a, a new gas tank they developed with a, with, a, with a plastic lining inside. So if it got punctured in an accident or whatever, it wouldn't blow up, it wouldn't catch fire and explode. And so they wanted the gas tank and the, and the, narr- the on-camera person and all the different things that needed to be showed in this documentary sales film. Uh, uh, they wanted it to look like it was the stuff was hanging in air. Okay. They didn't want to see any supports. I didn't want the stuff laid out on a table or a tablecloth or any of that. And so we bought black velour, and we and we used that black velour all around the walls of the studio, so that you know what the black velour does. There are no shadows because shadows are dark. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, so the shadows would go away, and so the, the, it gave them the effect they wanted. So I had the black velour, and I had the, I did the studio. I, I made the torture chair. I, I made most of the props, and I ended up even doing most of the blood effects because Savini left to be in Night Riders. Right. So he didn't end up doing the whole job. I, so I had to do it. So wait, it's a low-budget movie. <laughs> I'm Mike. And I'm Allison. We've both been guests on We Are Movies before. We love talking movies with Johnny. But I'm a jealous boy. You are. That's why we've decided to talk movies with with each other. We started our own podcast called You You Made Made Me Me Watch. Watch. Each week we make each other watch a movie the other has never seen. You Made Me Watch. New episodes every Friday. What, What size crew were you working with? Basically just me and Paul McCullough who was at the shooting it and John Rice and Eric Baca who were the they were the sound guy and the uh, lighting guy. Oh wow! Uh, and the, on on the, some of the days we had friends that came and helped out, and we gave a whole lot of screen credits because just to make it look like we had more of a budget, but we didn't. <laughs> it was basically me and three guys. I killed myself making that movie. Like I said, it's my personal favorite. Um, I understand. Am I correct in saying that Heartstopper is your favorite movie that you've directed? Let's see, of the ones I've directed, uh, you probably never saw The Mob Boss and The Soul Singer. It's not a horror film, but it's 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 a really good film. Almost got into Sundance with it. George Romero liked it I all a lot. And uh, it, it's it's actually available on Amazon from Burning Ball Publishing, but we're, we're in the process of, uh, in fact, uh, Gary, Gary uh, Vincent, my producer and partner, he's coming to pick up a master of it because now we have uh, we have outlets to get things on Redbox and you know streaming sites and everything else. So it'll probably be distributed in a bigger way pretty soon. And so will the original. Well, we uh, there's a deal in the works for the midnight that Sam Sherman's working on that, to get it out of the hands of Lionsgate. Uh, like a, a remake of, of Midnight. No, the, well, we did a remake that came out Feb, February 14th, and it, you can get it from Burning Bulb Publishing, 
but Gary Vincent wanted to do a, a remake, and he's been doing these on, again on a low budget, but he's got it looks really good. He took it in in a supernatural direction, because partly because he was filming during COVID. Oh, and it was really tough, and so, but it's it's real marketable. Uh, it's he did a hell. He's become a really good director. He's done a number of films now. Well, I mean, that brings me to one of the most important parts of your career, which is is your mentorship. You've written a number of books about filmmaking. Um, you obviously you founded the movie making program at Dubois Business College. Yeah, it was a we were doing it at WRS Motion Picture Lab, and they went out of business, and we took it to Dubois. And it took them a couple of years. We already have the license, but it still took them two years. And they didn't promote it like they were supposed to. And then they went out of business. So we were there. It's It was the best and the least expensive program in the country. And I know what I'm talking about because I researched everybody's program. And I did innovative things. That, well, obviously, if they're innovative, nobody else was doing and so it's and the student work was amazing. Is there anything about being a teacher in filmmaking? Like how or how would you speak to that experience and just uh, I guess what it's like to educate young filmmakers and what you what you've taken away from it? Well, my degree is in English education, and I was a teacher for a couple of years before I joined George Romero and Ross Dreiner full time. So I knew how. To, that's the thing. I I'm, I. Some people can teach, but they don't have the filmmaking experience. And other people have the filmmaking experience, but they don't have a clue about how to teach it. And so I had both. So Well, and I also have to ask, I'm sure you've probably talked about this quite a few times before, but on uh, on your books and on your website, you have this amazing testimonial from Quentin Tarantino about your books. Uh-huh. Uh, could you tell me that story, How how you ended up talking to him about it? Uh, I met him at the, he was came to Pittsburgh with Robert Rodriguez to go to the Land of the Dead premiere. And when my wife and I walked into the theater, um, and George or somebody introduced, me, introduced us, he said, you're the guy that wrote the books. And I said, which books? Because I didn't know, you know, he might have meant the novels. He said, the movie-making book. So later we were having a drink together at the bar, and he said, you know, I made him start a movie I didn't finish, and then I read your books and took notes and made charts, and that's what guided me through my first complete movie. So that's how it came about. I don't know if it was Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, or what, but they're both really good movies. I think he brought Lawrence Tierney, he cast Lawrence Tierney and Reservoir Dogs because we were we brought Tyranny out of retirement to do Midnight. Right. I, I think I think Quentin probably saw him in Midnight because he saw everything back. He watched all that kind of stuff when he was a clerk at a video store. I, I mean, I just watched again uh, your most recent film. Um, my my uncle John is a zombie. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, you you work with a lot of well known. Uh, veterans in that film debbie rashan who you also worked with in uh santa claus is in it and uh, russell Striner, lloyd kaufman shows up um but you also have a lot of fresh faces when you're making a movie now at this point what, what's the audition process like for for that film 
Well, in that case, uh, Rob Lucas was, you know, one of our co-producers, and he's my co-director because I was on camera a lot. Mm. And Rob brought in a lot of people from. He he brought in uh, some of the cast and and the, and the, and the production people from from L.A. where his where he uh, he still is and has a studio there. So that's how that got done. But then. Hordes of people show up because it's a zombie movie and it's my movie and they want to be in it. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's it was fairly easy. We knew Gary was gonna. I kind of wrote it with Gary in mind to play the dumbass uh, nephew, <laughs> uh, and you know I knew I was going to do the lead, which that's the biggest part I ever did because I had to do it. I'm the one that makes people laugh when we're on stage. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> that's just the way it is. And I figure, I, God damn it, I will do this role because <laughs> people. I mean, George said you're trying to reinvent yourself. What the fuck are you talking about? I've done every <laughs> kind of thing in my whole career, reinvent myself. And so I said, I will do this goddamn role. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> you have to have a. You have to have some defiance in you to 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 be because the whole world's ready to trample you at every turn. I mean, there's a couple of things about that that movie that I think are are kind of special in terms of your career because it it has a lot of the hallmarks that I think I spy uh, throughout the films you've written. So obviously, I mean, it it pays a lot of homage to Night of the Living Dead. But as we were talking before, there's the the um, the themes of kind of, of crazed religion with uh, Russell Striner's character too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and one thing I, and one thing I noticed <laughs> that was kind of funny. Well, in, my, in my opinion, it's all crazed. Sure. Of course. Or another. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that brings me to early on, there's a, a funny mm-hmm. line that he has where he, he talks about, cause he's, you know, he's against zombies uh, living amongst people and he says that he mentions kind of offhandedly that he used to protest gay and lesbian relationships. And there is kind of reoccurring uh, political themes throughout that movie. Was that always the intention when you were writing it, that you kind of wanted to do a political yeah. satire? Oh, yeah. If you read a novel, it's totally into that because the novel's told from Uncle John's point of view. But he and I end up starting a blog and he and and I characterize him as a former political science professor at a small college so he has all these opinions so it's like uh, uh America and 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 Trump and, and and the whole thing the whole size society seen through the eyes of a zombie <laughs> it's pretty damn funny and it's you know published by Bur- Involved publishing too. You go along with the movie, and the distributor isn't there. We may try to get it back because they're not. The movie got great reviews all over the place, and every audience that's seen it loves it, and they don't promote it right. So that's but that's a common problem. Well, yeah, the first time I watched it was when uh, actually the first time I met you when we were uh, you were at Motor City Nightmares in Novi, Michigan, mm-hmm. with the film. And, um, and I remember it going over pretty well. And, um, in some ways I feel the, the, the film feels like an extension of some of the themes set up in, in, uh, 
Return of the Living Dead, where you, obviously it is a, it's a comedic take on zombies, but also kind of expanding the the human qualities of the zombies, um, and then also you you're using, as you mentioned, I guess, the the perspective of a zombie to view America. And it's sort of a more simple, stripped-down vision of of what we're all like. Yeah. Well, all of those things are fun to play with. And my, and my, that's my attitude. It's just all fun. I always tell people from on stage and talking to a young filmmaker, you know, if you can't have fun doing it, get out of the business and, and don't <laughs> don't stay in it and wreck other people's lives and careers. Just get yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> and most people that I know that are, you know, like I mentioned, the special effects people and so on. Tom, Tom, Tom's a practical joker, too. But they all have fun. They all have a gleam in their eye when they're doing this stuff. So um, why not? We work our asses off, you know, countless hours a day and on shooting schedules and everything. And but 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 it's fun. We're doing what we want to do. Was that your first time shooting on digital on My Uncle John as a Zombie? I think, yeah, I think so. Okay. Now I, mean, I think it's great. You can do stuff, you know. And I've never been a purist. I always, I said years ago, film is going to go bye bye because of the economics of it. Right. You know, when it costs seven thousand dollars a print to open a film in two thousand theaters, and you can just have it on a digital device that comes by satellite. I mean, come on. You know, it's going to yeah. And plus, it looks better and better now. I mean, it looks really, really good. The digital stuff, it didn't... People used to film look it, you know. Uh, right. Process, film look process. Now, nobody bothers, I don't think. To that point, um, when you think of the position you were in starting off in the, in the 60s, and where a lot of young aspiring independent filmmakers are now, do you think that the the landscape for filmmaking looks much more optimistic? Well, you can do things, you know, if you want to, you know, we, when we were trying to do, and it was so um, hard, I don't, uh, everything was, was so hard. And in in, in, you had to have at least $100,000, $150,000 to make a film. And we didn't when we made Night of the Living Dead, but we had all the equipment in that by that time. Now, you for five grand, you can be in business. All you need is a computer and a digital camera. And I just say, just go ahead and do it. You know. I mean, on, on that on that note, I obviously I, I refer everybody to the books you've written about filmmaking. But I guess to, to somebody who is tr- trying to get a project off the ground. What do you think is the most key piece of advice you would give to somebody who's trying to make something with very little? The hardest part, but the necessary part, is to team up with people who are in it for the long haul. And most projects are wrecked because the girl gets beat up and somebody gets on drugs and somebody else goes away on vacation and all that kind of shit. You know, we we've mm. had people... We had a small group of people that stuck together and were in it for the long haul and had a tremendous zeal to, to, to succeed in the movie business. And so that was one of our biggest advantages. 
what what do you have in the works right now? I know obviously there's, it's a difficult time for filmmaking right now, but is there uh, anything you have in the works or in the can that we should look forward to seeing soon? Well, uh, Gary and I are going to meet and decide what we want to do next because during COVID, I just kept writing. I rewrote, rewrote a couple of novels and wrote two new ones, and I wrote a couple, rewrote or finished a couple of screenplays, and they're all designed for this um, new new kind of process that Gary's opened up. So we're going to see. I have a really, really good script that's uh, been um, approved by the Montana Film Bureau. It's a it's a it's a what I call a Western horror story. Oh wow! Based on a, it's called Rufus Buck and. The Rufus Buck gang were five teenagers, five uh, uh, half-breeds, mostly black, you know, crosses between blacks and and Creek Indians. And they went on a 19-day a rampage in 1895 of just horrendous rapes and murders. And they were caught and sentenced to death by Isaac Parker, the hanging judge, and they were all hanged. That, that, Fort Smith had a gallows that could could hang 12 people at once, so all five of them were hanged. But anyway, there's a fictional story built around it, and people are saying it's one of the best things they ever wrote. And so we're hoping that one, as this COVID thing uh, uh, winds down, that, that it's uh, it, it's supposed to be done like for five or ten million dollars. Wow. We'll see. We'll see if that happens. But that's and then we uh, there are so many other ones like I have I have a crazy one. Uh, it's one of the prem the premise of uh, my book, the epidemic of the living dead. The epidemic starts when this drugged out rock band uses needles that are infected with zombie blood, and it starts the whole epidemic all over again. So I have a script called Fried Brains, and that's the name of it. It's uh -oh. in the movie. They're called the Hateful Dead. I mean, in the book, but I have a screenplay version called Fried Brains, and it, it deals the whole. You know, a large part of the movie takes place in this nightclub where they're rehearsing, and they they don't know. They find out that they've shot up with these infected needles, <laughs> and they're all going to turn into zombies. Anyway. So that it's pretty exciting. More no, time. I'm mostly doing things that have been in my files and in my mind, in some cases for years, and I've been able to to now write them and yeah. get them there. You know, get a lot of material all finished and ready to go. Well, that's exciting, and uh, I have to say, you you had me at horror western, which uh, is just uh, one of my favorite. This is a really really good story. So hopefully, it'll get done. I uh, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Um, was there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Well, Chuck Corby, we just finished. Uh, it's going to be it's published by Burning Ball Publishing, Gary Vincent's company. But Chuck Corby, who stars in The Mob Boss and The Soul Singer, he's known as a world class soul singer, and he's very good as an actor and a singer. Anyway, we just published his book. It's on Amazon now. It's called Chuck Corby, Soul Survivor. Okay. And his, his stories are great, hilarious and everything. 
So you might want to look that up on Amazon. Chuck Corby, Soul Survivor, S-O-U-L. Yeah, thank you very much. I just want to thank you for your time and everything you've done to uh, inspire young filmmakers, people I know, and myself. And uh, like I said, thank you for your time. Thank you. See ya. All right, everybody, that wraps up another episode of We Are Movies. Thank you so much for listening, and an absolute wholehearted thank you to John Russo for coming on the podcast. I can't say how much I appreciate it and how much I just loved having this conversation and uh, hearing everything that he had to say about just the the hardships of low-budget filmmaking and and uh, making do and rolling with the punches. Those are the kinds of stories that just uh, will never stop engaging me. And so, um, obviously, thank you to him. And if you haven't seen any of his... Well, first of all, if you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead, I don't know what I can say to you. Uh, <laughs> you, you should have seen it by now. But if you haven't, obviously, go see it. Buy the Criterion Blu-ray. I highly recommend that. And uh, definitely see Midnight uh, if you get the time. And you can also find My Uncle John is a Zombie, the, the Mob Boss and the Soul Singer, Chuck Corky, Soul Survivor, all on Amazon Prime. I also believe um, My Uncle John is a Zombie is on Tubi as well. So see it however you'd like and support the Soundcastle, um, who... I'm not sure of their current whereabouts, but their song for Midnight is absolutely fantastic. If you've enjoyed this episode, and if you haven't already, feel free to subscribe to the podcast. I also appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't yet, feel free to like us on Facebook at We Are Movies. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at We Are Movies Pod. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Johnny Mockney, J-O-H-N-N-Y-M-O-C-N-Y. I will be back with you very soon. And until then, this is Johnny Mockney saying, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Barbara.